Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. This past weekend, well as I'm recording this anyway, I was fortunate to be able to give a presentation at Maidstone Museum, one of the largest museums in the county of Kent. The museum currently has a special exhibition running until June, funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund, and called Animal Guising and the Kentish Hooden Horse. Hoodening is a tradition coming out of Kent and usually performed around Christmas time. It features a wooden hobby horse mounted on a pole as part of the tradition. It bears some similarities to mumming, which we've covered on the podcast before, as well as the house-visiting traditions of the Marycluid from Wales and the Penglass hobby horse from Cornwall. The exhibition features a wide variety of hooden horses, some quite old, as well as many other artefacts from the ceremonies and some hobby horses from outside of Kent. The Folklore Library and Archive has loaned its own West Country Black Dog hobby horse to the exhibition, which is why I'd been invited to give a presentation. The exhibition is curated by James Frost, and just after it opened in February, it hosted a panel discussion on the customs and tradition of the area. This was chaired by Professor Ronald Hutton, and featured Dr Jeff Dole, lecturer in medieval and traditional culture, George Frampton, the author of the book Discordant Comicals, which you can find a review of on the Folklore Podcast website, and Ben Jones, from the St Nicholas at Wade Hoodners, who've also loaned horses to the exhibition. We were fortunate to be asked by Maidstone Museum and by the curator, James Frost, to provide a platform for some of the talks and events to be broadcast on. And so, today we're presenting for you the recording made by the museum of this panel discussion, which I hope you'll find interesting. There will now ensue an unforgettable, a pivotal, a seminal 40 minutes of discussion. As you can see by my colleague's attire, all of them are hardened hoodners, but all of them are thoroughly and magnificently respected experts in the folklore of Kant and folklore in general. To my immediate left, in the green garb of a Sussex Father Christmas, we have Dr. Jeff Dole, author of The Folklore of Kent and one of the finest of the books on the Hood and Horse on display. And next to him, Ben Jones, master of the finest current website on Hoodling and other publications. And beyond him, George Frampton, author of, again, one of the finest books on the Hood and Horse tradition. In fact, what we have captured for you tonight is the assembled wisdom of the customer. So... I am standing in for James Frost, who spent half a year organising tonight and then caught COVID. Three years, actually. Tragically. Yeah. And so I'm going to ask Ben, as somebody who knows what it's like to hood from the inside, literally, what do you consider to be the three defining characteristics of hoodening? Uh, okay, um, it's it's difficult to to tie it down, but I think if you if you're talking about hoodening, the the most 
most essential feature is probably the horse, the hooden horse. That's what everybody will know as being an integral part of hoodening. And it wasn't necessarily always in there. Uh, you look back at the, the first record of the, the word hooding, 1736, and it just said a, a form of sort of guising or caroling that they do at Christmas time. It didn't mention a horse. But ever since 1807, when the, the, the first report came out in the New European, people have been talking about hoodening with a horse. And it's not just any horse, it's a horse that stoops, uh, it's not a horse that is upright, it's a black horse, or at least a dark horse, um, it's not a horse that dances, so it's, it's quite different from the sort of upright horses you'll see dancing around the place in other traditions. So I think that's the first essential element. Um, second one is that it's unique to uh, the area of East Kent. So all of the records where the word was used, where the tradition um, continued, it, it's all referencing East Kent, so Thanet and spreading a bit beyond to Canterbury, maybe Folkestone, maybe up as far as Faversham, but not really much uh, beyond that. So I think that's another essential element. And then um, the third one is that it is something that is performed at in, in the midwinter, as, as you were just saying. So it doesn't have to be actually Christmas time, it can be around the winter solstice or, or whatever, but it's, it's definitely a winter tradition. So I think those are the three elements. Um, I think those might offend certain people, because you will find lots of people now who have so-called hooden horses that they take out doing what they call hoodening in the middle of summer, somewhere over the other end of the country, their horse is white, they stand upright and they dance with it and so on. <laughs> But that's fine, but as far as I'm concerned, that doesn't come into my definition of what hoodening is. Anyone else? Yeah, oh, the only thing I can add to that is, okay, the horse, I totally agree with. Largely, it's a wooden effigy of a horse. Um, I discussed this with uh, Mark Lawson of the Whitstable Hoodners, who I'd have liked to have been here on this panel, but uh, he's uh, not a well person these days and has been taken into care in Canterbury. And... Um, he said he was talking about when he was thinking about taking around a horse, getting a horse's skull. But he says his problem, he seemed to be some sort of expert in um, stuffing horses or something like that. Getting the, the uh, jaw of the uh, a skull to open and close like they do the old top. But the other thing I'd like to say about is, um, yes, definition of hoodening to me, it's caravari. It's a humorous, a humorous impersonation by the lower classes of their lords and masters, the farmers and employers, and, and a hierarchy, because in the farm, it's farm hierarchy itself, you had the wagoner, who was more highly paid than the uh, Stinky Sam or anybody else in the, uh, in, in, in the St Nicholas play, and it's all uh, done over a wide ge geographic range, uh, range to solicit arms from all the great and good, the big houses and other farms as well. And by the way, I'm not a hoodner. I have never hoodened. Okay, I read the Wagoners script once. Um, I am dressed in the garb. The very last time I went out with the Neeple Molly men at Plough Monday at the Whittlesea Straw Bear, uh, and the Whittlesea Straw Bear Festival, I wore this costume. Um, the ribbons, I call it my tatty jacket. And <coughs> these ribbons are favours given by wives and girlfriends and well-wishers on the very large roots they did. 
And the sweatshirt is Willetsy Straw Bear Fest, which I've been going to every year since 1983, with two year exceptions when I wasn't well on another occasion. And um, uh, it's a lot, it, this, is a lot, this is thinner than the sweater I wear on one of the coldest nights of the year. So that's there. I'm not, I'm not a hoodner. I come from Hampshire originally. I've lived in Kent for 30 years. Joined, I came here to become a full-time member of the Seven Champions Molly Dancers, and that began another route of explanation, which I'll mention at the death. Jeff, can I ask you to take us back a bit further into the custom? Behind every great modern folklorist is almost always a great Victorian folklorist. Could you tell us the importance of Percy, Percy Malam, and what he did for the tradition? Well, as you quite rightly say, Ronald, it's, um, there, is a whole, there are a whole group of, um, of, of professional people at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, who are documenting folk customs that, were, that seemed to be disappearing. And it's great that Woodening has, has survived. And without their work, without Cecil Sharp's work on folk song and dance, without Percy Mayne on the Hooden Horse, and lots of other people as well, um, the, a lot of these things would have died out. So I think that's of massive importance. There's been a, a trend of, of, of um, attacking some of these figures. I mean, Cecil Sharp has been considered attacked, Vaughan Williams has been attacked. I, I don't attack them. I think they were titans. Um, and we have to see they're collecting in the context of the period. And Percy, I mean, as a solicitor, he was, um, he, he was very careful what he said. And, um, you know, you can't really... It's very difficult to find things he... His views, he expresses, are totally wrong. He will say that maybe there's a connection with Anglo-Saxon culture. He's very cautious. He's very balanced. And I think he, he's very friendly. I think that there's a, a message there to folklorists not to fall out with each other, you know, to, to harmonise, to debate in, in a civilised manner. So I think Percy, he does a massive amount of research in records, uh, in, in magazines, journals, newspapers. Uh, he, he's very, a very balanced account, and he's, for, for the period, he's quite nice to the people he's collecting from. He takes, <laughs> takes an interest in them. So, Thank you. I th- yeah, I, th- I think um, one thing that Jeff said there is quite important is that Percy Malam's great indisputable contribution is is that he documented the custom so I think quite separate from his analysis of you know where it came from or other other aspects of it the fact that he actually put it down on paper and interviewed the people who were doing it at the time and got photographs yeah. if you think about it the only yeah. photographs that we have uh, from like pre pre first world war they were ones like, was it seven photographs that was that were taken well by Percy Malam or at his instigation so he he was the one who actually got down in documentary form evidence of what was going on at that time. I, I'm not sure if the custom would have died out without him because there were people who continued it without having read Maiden. Um, but he was, he was certainly invaluable in, in documenting the, the state of the art as it was in 1909. George. Okay, all I can say about that to add to anything to it... Uh, I think, Ben, you were very rude in dissing the role of the Morris dancer in reviving the custom, because the first revive of the uh, the, uh, Hoodening of sorts, or when the use of Hoodden Horse was used, was in 1939 by the old boys' school at Beckenham. And uh, they did two displays, one at Hearn Hill and one just up the road at uh, Aylesford Priory. And um, there's there's old (coughs) footage of them of the Hoodden Horse actually glumped them through a half hay 
for those who had done Morris dancing, and there uh, have been many instances then. As Percy Malin's concerned, he used his role as a solicitor very, very well, and a lot of his clients were those who he interviewed and all the rest of it, who uh, sponsored the, the Hood and Horse itself in Thanet. So that's his major contribution. And apart from that, other people could read into it and use it as a, as a modus operandi to define their own way of hooding. George, could you carry on by taking us right up to the present? Again? Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. Okay, <laughs> In your okay. Specifically, okay specifically. right, okay, I'll try and be as brief as I can. Um, between 1939 and 1966, <coughs> there are only seven known instances during that time where the hood and horse was used. I've just mentioned the uh, school at uh, the minor public school at Beckenham. It was used in a carnival in 1945 of VE Day at Acol, near St. Lix at Wade. In the 1950s, for three years only, it was used at Birchington by the Birchington Evening Townswomen's Guild. And Ben was presented with a horse that was used at that time, and it's on display upstairs. Um, it's also a part of a, uh, also used uh, it's no, we, dis, we, 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 we have to analyse really. It was used as a summer, a summer non-seasonal festival by um, the, the uh, East Kent Morris men. No, East Kent Morris men, yeah. Barnett and Olive Field, and they revived it and they used it in the uh, Folkestone Midsummer Festival they had at that day. And one of the other books you can use is called Midsummer Fire. Um, which was written by Barnett Field, which includes that. And the uh, big one of the um, big giant hobby ho- hood and horse you can see upstairs is a, actually got a, a former mini miner underneath it, propelling it along. Um, it was, uh, and of course, it was revived in the uh, revived for performance. It's a Christmas-based performance in the 1966, uh, no, 1950s, by Edward Coombe's horse. Um, which a young, very young Mark Lawson can remember. And again, the horse is upstairs that was used at that time. And it was, uh, what they, they had the title North Sea Floods around that time as well, and a member of the Rabble Folk Theatre, to which I belonged at one time, um, could remember it being washed out and recovered since when they've adorned it with oyster shells, which is a signature of uh, Whitstable itself. It was used at Crumdale and Godmersham as a youth club exercise and as a one-off at... Um, Steed Hill at uh, Harrietsham by um, the author R.H. Goodsell. It was meshed then in 1966 with a death and resurrection type mummers play by St. Nicholas at Wade Hoodners. What goes then is, ben, I think a lot of research took place. What did the original Hoodners do at St. Nicholas at Wade in 1921-22 when it last went out? And basically, so they're getting around seeing the old songs and things <coughs> very often from Felix McLennan song sheets, of which I make a collection myself. You get 150 songs, no music, just, just words. And um, but they, um, One of the members of the original team in 1966, I think, was the he, um, head of English language at Chatham House Grammar in Ramsgate, uh, Mr Brian Debenham. And he said, we are going to have a mummer's play and I am going to write it. Unfortunately, <laughs> Petard and Hoist were actually, were actually married together and they've done a play every year since then with humorous, hilarious rhyming couplets, very, very topical. And if you do nothing else over Christmas, do make a go and point and see them up in the Thanet. Um, 1981, Jeff will tell you about how the um, 
Tunbridge Mummers and Hoodners devised their play with Nick Miller. In 1984, uh, Mark Lawson was still taking around the hood and horse at Curtail Christmas time. He was reproached by um, Kerry Fletcher's mother, Dixie. Um, they, they, she had started somewhere single-handedly, I think, um, uh, Winstable May Day. And Dixie approached Mark and said, couldn't you take the hoodners out? And he says, what am I supposed to do? He only do the hood and ho- take the hood and horse out at Christmas with the characters. And then he thought, one of the members of the St Nicholas team had moved to Wilstable, Martin Beale. Oh, they do a play. We could make it accessible. So he brainstormed I- ideas. The play's been very much copied by, well, certainly Rabble Folk Theatre have used bits and pieces of it. <coughs> Correct me if I'm wrong, Paul and Carol at the back. Um, if you go on YouTube, you can find the Froome Valley Morris men. You also use the same damn thing. So, um, Carolyn was also used as well as a, a modus operandi, certainly by the uh, Deal Hoodners when they revived, and revived in 1999. And um, last thing I was going to ask was is it an endangered species? Well, teams come and teams go and have done ever since. I don't think the Tunbridge Hoodners <coughs> exist anymore. And um, they've passed their play, I think, thanks to Jeff, to uh, Jeff James Frost's team, Canterbury Hoodners. Well, we are doing a sort of joint Canterbury Tunbridge one in May here, uh-huh. yeah. uh, last Saturday in May. Probably be the last, second but last performance of the Tunbridge Hoodners <coughs> yeah. doing the Kent County show. But George is quite right, we're moving more into, I'm now in Canterbury, so I'm working with James in Canterbury with the Canterbury Hoodners. I'd like to pay tribute, by the way, to James. Sorry he's not here tonight, but superb, the best exhibition I've ever seen on folk yeah. customs and folk yeah, yeah. And James... Yeah. Yeah. If it's possible to have an overview of the present, has the revival peaked and is it now tailing off? Is it still gathering force? What is the health of Hoodning in 2023? Well, I think, um, again, the exhibition, James is a performer and uh, he's showing the vitality of how it can be adapted. It has been adapted, you know, I think it's been going on in elements um, well, well before the 19th century these elements are going forward but they have to be adapted this is the, the, the evolution of folk customs and from that point of view it's very healthy we have got, we've got the written records we can always go back to a tradition in a certain period but the, all these things ha- um, do have to evolve I, as, as I think my colleagues know I, I have a big problem with the word revival because um, like George was saying, it was revived in 1939. That's having died out about five years earlier in a different area. And you look back at the history, you know, there was a record in 1736, 1807, 1828. There were long periods in history where we don't know whether it was happening or not. We assume that maybe it was. So saying on each one of these occasions, it's died out. Oh, now it's revived. And in fact, you do find people in the, in the, in the newspapers of the 19th century constantly saying, this custom has long died out, and then, you know, the next year, it's back again. <laughs> so, so I don't 
I don't really like the word revival. I don't find the thing that we did in 1966 is really a revival. I'd say that the, the horses had gone to sleep for a while, then we said, well, let's do it again. That, that's all there is to it. Having said that, there are, there are elements in, in what uh, Professor Hutton's just said of um, a sort of boom in revival groups, and it's like you can see with the Mary Lloyd now in Wales. You know, All of a sudden there are dozens of Mary Lloyds that will come together at Chepstow, and this is the next big thing. And I'm sort of thinking, well, let's give it 50 years, see if they're still doing it. Because we've been doing it for over 50 years. And the, the sort of hoodening teams that sprung up in, uh, where is it, Sandgate and various other places, you know, they sort of came and they did it for a few years and then they disappeared again. So some people will be here in 50 years' time. I'm, I'm quite confident of that. We're, as, as George said, we're on to second generation now. You do um, a different play every year, don't you? We do. Yeah. You're evolving every year, aren't you? A- absolutely. Yeah. We, it's got to be a living tradition. I don't like the yeah. something being sort of set in stone because it's too easy for that to die and, and get boring. As, as yeah. we heard in the talk earlier, people will get bored with stuff and that, that, that would be the death of it. Well, I go along with that. Some people call it ritual. I prefer to call it ceremonial. Um, I've, I've always had this problem with the tradition and um, revival myself too, but only as far as folk song is concerned. Um, I would like to say the only thing is that many of us are no longer spring chickens, and um, teams come and teams go, and uh, its future is only um, sustainable, fostered by enthusiasts like us here. And um, again, lastly, I'd like to pay tribute to James. Um, it's for raising the profile of a comparatively obscure um, 21st century winter um, <clears throat> custom to a wider audience. What's not to like about that? His, his, ex- his ex- exhibition upstairs is amazing. And, um, and it's in Maidstone. <laughs> Maidstone never had a hood and horse custom. The most westerly I could find in interviewing people was in Cholock. And then it was used as a rough music thing in skimmity riding. So there you go. And I think it was also used in St. Nicholas Way too. Somebody was flashing around the book earlier, I saw it. I, I think also, I mean, looking around tonight's audience, it, it's, it's very encouraging because I, I will do talks on the Hood and Horse and I'll, I'll take some of our horses around and do talks to women's institutes and things like that. And you can say, almost invariably, everybody is even greyer than I am. And, you know, and sort of, yeah, we remember this from when we were young. You won't see young people there doing that. You will see them in the pubs. When we perform in the pubs, you will see them there. But they'll, they'll enjoy it for one night a year. But possibly thanks to the internet, to... Oh, did anybody see the Brit, Brit Awards? Was it yesterday? Yeah, did you see the horse that was there? Yeah. Not, not a real hooden horse, of course. That's, that's, I mean, that's, that's the wrong time of year and everything like that. And it was dancing. But Steve Rowley who made that horse. Um, and, um, right, excellent. Well done. We are honoured to have Steve tonight. But, but yeah, so it, it, is, it, it can be something that attracts uh, young people, and you need to have the fresh blood. <coughs> and like I say, we're, we're lucky to have some young people, but who knows, 20 years, it might no longer be in fashion. Will the custom continue? I don't think it's endangered. I think there, there was a... It's a bit of a loaded question there from James, because there has been a... Uh, people have been talking about whether hoodening should be a, an intangible cultural heritage to be protected by UNESCO. <laughs> and you think, well, that's, that's nice, you know, UNESCO. And then you look at the, the sort of definition, and it says something that is in danger of dying out. 
well, we're not, thank you very much. <laughs> and they, they could protect our tradition. But what would that mean? Would, would that mean that we were like the, the two Maidstone horses stuck in a museum, not coming out and actually performing? Well, we don't want that. We, you know, we don't want to be put into a box. We, we want to keep doing our tradition as it lives. Well, can I hang another heavy question from James on that? Uh, is there a tension between tradition and innovation in the present-day performance of open quotations, folk, or close quotations, customs? Well, I'll start the ball rolling, if you like, about that one, too. Um, I took part in this, uh, with Ben, um, in this auto-hoodening seminar at Goldsmiths College back in 2019, and I invited Doc Rowe myself, because I'm a good friend of his, from my contacts with the Traditional Song Forum, and for that matter, Paul Caldell, who was at that time, I believe, the um, chairman of the Folklore Society. And um, Doc, Doc queried his student comments about his use of the play, because I've already said it's Brian Debenham, who's the sister of having a play attached to the St Nicholas tradition in 1966. There, there was a reason that Brian did that. Um, the, the reason was that we spoke to the, the earlier hoodners and they, they said, we asked them, what do you do? And they said, well, we go around and say, got any change, effectively, and when they try and slam the door, we jam the pole in there, and we burst in, and we say, give us some money or some cake and ale, food like that. It's, it's basically a form of begging because they were so poor in the winter. But when Brian Debenham and the others came along, they were, as one of the old hoodners said, they were a different class of people, too inhibited. So we didn't feel able to just sort of barge in and say, give us money. Um, and they used to sing, and as well, George said, they sang the old songs. The songs were old by today's standards. By that time, at that time, it was the pop songs. They'd be doing like Beyonce or something. They would find the words to a Beyonce song, and they would go out and do that to perform people, because there was no radio, there was, there was nothing like that. So, but the trouble was, our team weren't good at barging in, weren't good at just telling jokes, weren't good at singing. <laughs> so, so what do you do? Why not write a play? And that, that's how the idea came of doing a play rather than anything else. But it is an, it is an evolution. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, our, our play, Nick and Nick Miller and myself, we, we use large elements from, 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 from the plays in Cheshire, and particularly Tommy the Pony in Dorset, with the, with the questions where the, the horse dies, is brought back to life and becomes a magic horse, answering questions, and you can bringing all sorts of scandal and questions about the communities. It's great fun. And uh, we were actually being, being booked by people, by people like National Trust, English Heritage, for large sums of money. We felt we had to do something more than just, 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 just sort of uh, rushing around falling off the horse. You know? So having a play gave a bit of a formal structure. We usually had, had musicians as well. And of course, I think the early hoodlers often did link in with things like handbell ringing or carol singing. You know, there, were, there was often more than just the horse going on. And the Married Lid, of course, has a kind of mini-play where it uh, has a rhyming combat to get inside the house. So I think the Hood and Horse may have had something like that originally. Who knows? But if we're drawing parallels across the country, I think one's justified in, in, in evolving the custom to include a play, if you want to. But if, it, if it's just going out with the Morris team, they're dancing. You probably don't need a play. Well, what happens when customary folk gets controversial? I know there's two of you gentlemen have blacked up for tonight. And uh, in the West Country, we have a real dilemma over our border Morris traditions. 
which involve black faces at midwinter. Uh, and these are not related to the black and white minstrel shows. They are a completely different tradition uh, of removing the actress or actor from the everyday rather as an executioner puts in a mask or rioters would blacken up their faces. Uh, it's a ritual guise, but it is smeared with racism at the present day. And so there's a real dilemma for our performers over whether to change colour uh, or whether to dig their heels in and say these issues are not related. How, how do you feel about that? Did you hear about the Zulus at um, the bonfire in Lewis? Uh, the, um, yes. the, the Cliff Society, some of them dress up as Zulus, there was a lot of rejection to this, so they invited some Zulus over, put them up, flew them over, let them march in the ceremony. They said at the end, are you offended that we dress up as Zulus? They said yes. So they spent thousands of pounds bringing <laughs> <laughs> the Zulus over, whining, giving lots of Harvey's beer, you know, whining and dining. <laughs> that is tragic. <laughs> I would take issue with the fact that it wasn't influenced by the black and white minstrel show or anything like that, because it certainly was. Really? That they were descended from Christie minstrels, which were de rigueur in the late 18th and early 19th century. If you look through local history books, you'll find a local village band or something like that, all blacked up. So certainly like that. And um, as far as molly dancing is concerned... Um, Look at the old photographs. Some are wearing masks. Some are actually blacked up in very dense blacking. The Meeple Molly men just smear it on these days. If you look at old photographs, they really cake it on. And uh, Ben just cakes his on with cork as well. So I think something <coughs> Steve Rowley. And he says, well, the Meeple men don't really black up these days anyway. Um, but people like um, Brian Kell, who organises Ritlesey Straw Bear Festival, says, it's our festival, it's our community... And that's exactly what the Baker Britannia Coconut dances to up in Lancashire. It's our community, our custom. We are the descendants of the old coal miners. We're going to carry on doing it. And so they are. Okay, they can't go into the EFDSS festivals or any other festivals now. Which community? Which community do you belong to? Do you belong to a folk community? Or do you belong to your own community? Baker was mill workers, but they were descended from the Tunstall Nutters, who were influenced by things like the black and white tradition, you know, that, that is documented. But Of course, black is, is other, and the, in the Ghost of the West Indies, the zombies are white, you know. It's not necessarily, necessarily being, being offensive, but if it causes distress to people, then one has to evolve, and, and that's yes. not... So we, we've, we've stopped blacking up. And, uh, I think many Morris teams have, have, have easily done it, have easily uh, worked out the way um, some type of easy to Sometimes they use blue. Sometimes they use, only use half the face or just the eyes, and it's, it's easily resolved. Yeah. It's not a problem. I mean, I was, I, I, I was telling you, Ronald at half time, you know, that uh, that um, if, if 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 you had the the killing uh, when we did the National Trust performance just for COVID, they were very concerned about us killing a Turkish knight. And they, they said, "Couldn't we kill a Frenchman?" <laughs> Macron, he's saying these appalling things about the British. Uh, so that, that's, that, that's the national trust. Uh, <laughs> and is, of course, wholly traditional. <laughs> I, I, I do think there's a, there's a difference between a lot of the blacking up that I see in, in sort of the Morris world and maybe other traditions there and what we do, because we don't do it to try and appear like a black person, shall we say. No. We, we do it 
Um, partly it's because what the, what the Hoodners did, I mean, there was a, a distinction made in Malam. He saw somebody who was blacked up and said, are you a Hoodner? And this person said in disgust, no, I'm a, I'm a excuse the language, I'm a n- minstrel. Right? Uh, nothing to do with those Hoodners. Um, so there was, a, there was a clear distinction there. Um, our blacking up is probably more, well, I think the main thing is trying to disguise yourself. Because yeah. in the agricultural riots of the 19th century, you, you would read the people in Thanet, they would take burnt cork and smear it on and so on, and they'd wear women's clothes, just as Molly will do in the team. And it's a way of making sure that people can't really tell who you are. Uh, and as farm workers, they, they probably would have been pretty dirty in any case. Um, and it's not designed to look fully black. There was one time when the boy in our team did, for some reason, get some cocoa and made, made himself look totally black. And it was ridiculous. And we said, take it off, just get some cork or something. So should we, you know, would we change? I don't think using cork to smear ourselves is similar to the blacking up that you'll see anywhere else. But, for example, what, what if we found out that cork was carcinogenic? Yeah. Would, would we say, this is our tradition, we're going to hold on to it, come what may? No, we're not, stu- we're not that stupid. <laughs> you should have some more moisture, Kate, a bit. Yeah, that's <laughs> probably more toxic. We need to leave a bit of time for questions from the floor. Uh, before we get there, is there anything that any of you are working on at the moment that you would like our friends here to know about, our companions? Well, my, my wife and I are doing a, a book on the cult of the horse. I have to be very careful after your talk. I can see it's a minefield. <laughs> I have to rewrite, rewrite, rephrase the whole book, I think, after your talk tonight. Don't, don't worry. <laughs> there, there are a few things that, yeah, I mean, I'm constantly working on things. For example, the first 50 years of um, the, the St. Nicholas Hoodening play, getting all of those into place with, with commentary, because a lot of the references nobody will know in future years. They, they don't even understand them now. If we talk about the roundabout, going down the roundabout, why do we keep on making reference to that roundabout? You know, we have to tell people, because otherwise it will be nonsensical. So maybe a compendium of the first 50 years of the play. The same with our songs. We do new songs every year. Get them down on a, on a CD or something, I don't know. Um, other ideas like that. I've got a dream that some, sometime, I don't know if I, I will or somebody else, will write a, a novel about Hoodening sort of as it was 150 years ago or something. I can see there's a lot of scope for that um, and I can maybe provide some ideas for that even if I don't manage to write it myself. So a lot of irons in the fire. Well, I, as I said earlier, I moved to Kent in 1984, <coughs> 1985, to become a full-time member of the Seven Champions Molly Dancers who did a, this custom they imported from um, Cambridgeshire, courtesy of uh, Russell Wortley of the Cambridge Morris Men. And so look out in the next few months for a book which I've uh, self-publishing called More Honoured in the Breach, which will tell you everything you wanted to know, was afraid to ask about Cambridge's Plough Monday customs, which includes Molly dancing, the straw bear and plough witching, which is a custom of taking around the plough every year. And the other, the other one I'm working on at the moment is... Um, for the Folk Music Journal, if they decide to publish it. And it's about the um, traditional secular folk song in the uh, fishing village of Colourcoats, which is about three miles from where I live in, up in Whitley Bay. And it's going to be called, at the moment, Whippity's Story and Lucky Lukey, which, uh, I'll, I'll, if, any, if, you're, if you've got patience to listen, I'll tell you all about. <laughs> the panel is open to questions from the floor. 
and immediately oh, one okay. from Steve. I was really interested in what you said about it being limited. Where do you see a new, fresh agreements group? What, what, what advice would you give to them for the 21st century of young women? It, we've, we've done lots of different venues and some of them have gone atrociously badly. Um, really, I mean, those are the ones which stick out in the memory. You don't remember the good receptions. You remember the really bad ones. Um, yeah, there are three, three in particular I can think of. We did Quexpo, which is a big agricultural exposition, uh, like the, the Kent Fair, I suppose. Um, done in Quex in, in Birchington and they said they wanted us to perform there at their summer festival and we thought we don't do summer but okay so we went along and they said right okay so here is your stage and showed us half an acre of land with sort of audience spotted around the outside <laughs> we thought you know we might project a little bit but there's no way we can reach that and so we started and a couple of minutes later we saw that there was one person at the, at the fence ne- ne- next to us and we just performed the rest of it to that one person <laughs> what are you meant to do we also did an 18th birthday party this was in Saar and yeah, they, they hadn't ordered a stripper and got us by mistake they had, they had wanted us so, so we walked in and they said uh, there's your microphone microphone? what is a microphone? And, and we went to the, to, the, to the corner of the pub and sort of stood next to this microphone, said about the first ten, ten lines or so. Nobody was listening, nobody was interested at all. But I think that's the only time that we've actually given up and just totally stopped and said, let's, let's just go and have a beer. It wasn't working. And then once more, this was also in a pub in Birchington, and it was the day that the teachers had finished school for, for the season. So we got in there, and it was full of teachers and a few builders as well who were getting roaring drunk, and they, they weren't listening to a word that we said. So in general, our experience has been, do it in the towns, and you don't get a good reception. It's very localised. Do it in the local village pubs or the individual houses where you can put in special lines about the host and so on. There it work. Anywhere else, it, it just isn't worth the effort. The... It will just fall flat, and it's no fault of the audience. They're not used to it. They don't understand it. It's, it's a very rural custom. We, we were paid to leave. I've <laughs> <laughs> you wrongly. I found out that Shakespeare's company, the King's Men, were also once paid to leave without performing. Uh, we, we, then, we then put it on our, our, our advert, the only, <laughs> only Hutton Horse team that has been paid to leave without performing. It's true, though, isn't it? Which pub is this? Is it Sackport's... It's still, still going. Uh, he double booked with a karaoke. <laughs> and all the youngsters were just leaving when they saw how old we were. You know. <laughs> so. uh, and that goes on with this question about the future. And I know Morris, uh, you know, was in my life. The first wench who performed with us was Fred. Um, Fred was an accordion player because the musician who was my brother um, couldn't do it that year and there was nobody else so Fred came along um, on, on accordion with a big bushy black beard didn't speak much Fred because Fred was my mother <laughs> uh, and it, it was just seen as it was I don't know there, there was no custom of women doing it at that time we have had we always have a man dressed as the molly, so playing a female part. And we have occasionally had wenches or females, ladies, whatever, come in and play an active role in it. The, the only thing I would say is that the, 
the atmosphere is very coarse. I mean, it, it involves basically a lot of drinking beer, a lot of farting, a lot of, you know, rude banter and things like that. We're still searching for the right women to come and join us. Ben, you forgot to mention the defecating horse. Oh, oh that's true. Yeah. There's never been a thing about passing it down to the person that's been sort of identified as it's yeah I mean it's in, this is the kind of thing that George researched a bit in his uh, book was how did the Hoodners meet each other how did they then how was it passed down from one generation to the next not necessarily related as, as people um, so yeah I'll, I'll leave George to answer on that but before I do what, what we have what we found is for example there, there's a tradition in our Hoodning team that says Hoodning comes first and it does, it takes priority over everything else. And that was demonstrated when Moll was in hospital and her, her wife was having a baby. Uh, but it was a hoodening night. So, you know, Moll's wife said, well, yeah, I know. Yeah, hoodening comes first. Sorry, love. You know, and Moll went out and did hoodening. But the, but the boy who was born that night has in turn become a hoodener. You know, because he was born into a hoodening, a hoodening time of course, every year on his birthday, it's a hoodening night, and so he's, he's now been with us for, I don't know, 20-plus years. No. So that was fairly easy um, to pass it down. And, yeah, Buddy, the wagoner's son, it was also fairly easy for him to come in. It. But there have been times when we've struggled because there's been nobody in the village who's really been up for all of the hard work that we put in. Um, the... the Stop laughing. <laughs> the, the rigorously rehearsing the play for months on end. Corpse on the day, yeah. Rehearsing how to corpse on the day. Yeah. George, I'll give the last word to you. Uh, what was the question again? How, how did you pass it down? Oh, how did they pass it down? Okay, North Deal, uh, it's, it's a community again. I mean, um, in St Nicholas and in the, in, in, um, the countryside, of course, it was the farm workers, so they all worked in the same area so you could uh, get together and all the rest of it and take practice in the barn or in the pub or something like that if they could afford it um, in the case of the deal hoodners and um, in history and today well I don't mean today uh, in history they, they used to be the north deal boatmen and uh, so it's all focused around that area and um, unlike they don't do a play they just go around marching singing the songs in fact um uh, Bob Scarden, who um, is photographed her in his, ta- in his lozenge jacket uh, with his concertina and the horse, um, he was a member of a Murray Larkin's band, and they just went around playing tunes all the time. They took the horse with them. So it's a question of community. In that case, the uh, North Kent boatman. And on that unforgettable image, <laughs> we'll start to bring things to a close. The fatal hour of eight has struck. The cockerel sleeps, the chattering worm doth glide. The carriages are at the gate. <laughs> the two it drakes carriages. Thank you so much, gentlemen. The Animal Guising and the Kentish Hood and Horse exhibition runs until the 17th of June at Maidstone Museum and it's completely free to visit. 
The museum also has some other excellent exhibits, including a Japanese gallery adjacent to this exhibition, which has many interesting artefacts, as well as samurai armour and swords. I took lots of photos and video and audio recordings whilst at the museum, and these will all be uploaded to the Folklore Library and Archive soon. So if you can't get to the exhibition in person, you're well covered between this podcast and the digital collections on the Library and Archive website. Another great music track coming up in just a moment to close this episode. Don't forget, you can join our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash the Folklore Podcast to help to support the podcast and the work of the Library and Archive, which is a non-profit organisation. Your help will enable us to keep bringing materials such as those talked about today to you in the future. There's lots of extra material from our archives and other content on the Patreon feed as a reward for supporters too. And you can access much of it for just a pound a month. So that's the price of a chocolate bar these days. And it's better for you. Playing us out this time is Mary Foxley with a track called Prince Heathen, taken from her debut EP Voices. Links to Mary and her work on the episode page for this episode on the Folklore Podcast website and in the show notes. If you like the music, you can find the rest of the album on Spotify. So do support her. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another episode very soon. See you next time. Young Margaret sat in a tower high And she's as pale as a milk-white swan When she saw a shadow on the plain Come betwixt her and the sun Oh, mother, is it a thundercloud Or a flight of ravens in the air Or a black army with a silver flag And a ragged man amongst them there Oh, daughter, go run in your little yard And bid adieu to your flowers so gay For yonder comes Prince Heathen's men And I fear they're coming to take you away In there come Prince Heathen then Saying good day, mother-in-law to you And where will I find that sweet little bride With her hands as soft as morning dew? Young Margaret locked her bower door But his men soon made the hinges spring And in there come Prince Heathen then And give to her a gay golden ring Back at him she flung the ring She cries of you, I have no fear I'll call you wolf-hound seven times Rather than call you husband, dear He swore then by her yellow hair He'd make her weep and call him dear He's taken her in his two dark arms And laid her on the cold stone floor And when he set her free again Her maiden head from her he's dead Now you're heathenish dog, nor yet for you. 
He's cast her down in a cabin of stone where forty locks did hang there to. Ha ha, bonnie maid, will you weep now? You heathenish dog, nor yet for you. Come, give my lady of the salt, salt meat and bitter vinegar for her brew. Ha ha, bonnie maid, will you weep now? You heathenish dog, nor yet for you. Prince heathen down from the mountains came where he'd been hunting with his armored men. He came on to this fair young maid all in the prison where she is laid. A drink, a drink, Prince heathen, she said, even if it's from the muddy well pool. Never a drink will you weep now, you heathenish dog, nor yet for you. He's taken her by her yellow hair and tied it to his horse's tail. He's dragged her through the bushes and briars that grow so thick all on the plain. Ride slower, slower, Prince Ethan, she says, already the blood has filled me sure. Ha ha, bonnie maid, will you weep now? You heathenish dog, nor yet for you. He shortened steps and on he flew, and with her body he's harrowed the road. Her silken skirt in tatters tore, her silken blouse was spattered with blood. Ride slower, slower, Prince Heathen, she says, for the road it sorely hurts me nay. Ha ha, bonnie maid, will you weep now? You heathenish dog, nor yet for thee. He shortened steps and on he flew. He's dragged her through the briar and thorns. Young Margaret gave a pitiful cry. And there she's had her little babe born. Oh, how can I wrap me sweet little babe, seeing as I've nothing to row him in? He gave to saddle blanket that'll roll him from cheek to chin as she took the blanket from his hand tears down her cheeks they trickling run ha ha bonnie maid will you weep now you heathenish dog nor yet for you i'm weeping for my own little son your blanket's too rough to roll him in ever That ever I met such rogues as you He says, go wash my baby in the milk And dress my lady in the silk When hearts are breaking, hands must bow And well I love my lady now she says, when violets bloom on the window pane and roses grow on the kitchen floor, it's then that I'll return again and be your bride for 